This episode contains disturbing content, including the following topics. Graphic violence, domestic abuse, child abuse, sexual abuse. Listener discretion is advised. This is the North American Service broadcasting on 
So actually, case closed. You can leave now. We don't have to talk about anything. You don't have to know anything. About it's mysterious, anything. and people died. Yeah, people died, and then also on top. That's of our it, first episode. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Bye. That's but also that being said, this occurred a little over a hundred years ago, and it also happened in Germany. So just just to be completely transparent. This is old as shit, and a lot of information is only in German, and it's not always, like, you know, perfectly translated. So I did take a lot of time cross-examining, doing the best research that I could for this episode. But just, but to avoid any misinformation, I was really, really confident in all of my research for this. So there are a lot of things I didn't know about. I'm bringing them to light. I know that they're factual. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, I was on Das Wiki. That's Vicky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, well, you know what else happened around 100 years ago in Germany? Mm-hmm. I don't remember. Yeah. Something significant. Yeah. Huh. I don't remember. Anyway. Anyways. This is probably more important than whatever whatever else could have happened around the, you know, the 1920s, 20s, 30s, 30s, 40s. 40s. <laughs> yeah. I have no idea. Mm, I don't know. Well, so. take us back then. Yeah. We're going to go back, back to 1922 in okay. southern Germany. Less than 45 miles north of the Bavarian capital city of Munich lay a remote and humble municipality called Weidhofen. Weidhofen, yeah. Weidhofen. That's how we're going to say it. Stop. That's how we're, that's how we're, that's only how we're going to say it. We're going to say everything and then we're going to say Weidhofen. Weidhofen. Because, you know, why not? (laughs) Municipality called Weidhofen. Mm -hmm. Just abruptly. (laughs) Well, how else am I supposed to say it? Like Weidhofen. Weidhofen. Yeah. Just like normal. I don't know. <laughs> so hidden away on the northern outskirts of this rural community was the hamlet of Groburn, a village made up of only about 25 buildings with 75 residents, most of which were peasants, farmers, and laborers. Ew. <laughs> so gross. Just outside of Groburn. More like Grossburn. <laughs> Am I right, ladies? More like poor burn, huh? Oh, you guys are like, you guys are like in a depression. Like you guys are about to like go into a huge depression. It's gonna like change the like course of history forever. Oh. Sounds like a you problem. Sounds scrub. like a you problem. Fight the hoven. Fight the hoven. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> okay. Anyway, how about you open your arms to some bitches? <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? Sorry. That didn't even make sense. Fight hoven. Oh, okay. Now, now I get it. More like vide get some hoves fin. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying. Whoa, that was I'm a reach. Trying. It's okay. That was good. No, I love it. Thanks. All right. Anyway, just <laughs> it's early in the morning too. Just outside of Groburn was an insignificantly small sprawl of farmland surrounded by the Witchwood, a dense, dark woodland of spruce, beech, and fir trees. And this place was called Kaifek. Quietly nestled on the edge of the Witchwood was the Hinterkaifeck Farmstead. Hinterkaifeck was an apt name for the dull farmstead. Hinter meaning behind. So behind Kaifeck. Wow. I know, right? It all makes sense. Oh, have you ever been to behind Kaifeck? It's 1922. It's a farm. They're not going to call it anything like super fun. Like, I don't know, like, uh, I was going to make a Nazi joke, but. Oh my God. We're not there yet. Don't do it. (laughs) We're not there yet. Later, maybe. Yeah. So the Hinterkaifeck farmstead was originally built in the early 1860s, and the property consisted of a multitude of structures. The largest structure being the oldest on the property was a single-story L-shaped stone farmhouse, which was split into two parts. The longer portion of the building was the living quarters, while the engine room, barn, and stables were located at the shorter end of the home. 
These sections at the smaller end of the building were all connected through a series of doors, which led to an entrance to the back end of the living quarters. So from the outside, you enter into the engine room and then the barn and then the stables and then the house Yeah, with doors that connect. And then once you're in the house, you can walk through the house and then there's a front door. So that's kind of the basic outline for that. Mm -hmm. So you know. Are there windows? There are windows, but they're nailed shut. Oh. No, they're not. Oh. Um, (laughs) Don't lie to me. I told you I don't know anything about this. (laughs) Near the front of the house was a decent-sized tool shed. This tool shed was used not only as storage for farm tools. This shed housed the farm's freshwater well and was also used as a laundry room. And the shed was also used as a bakery, equipped with an oven, furnace, and chimney. It's not a shed. That's just a whole house. That's just a whole house. That's just a whole fucking house. It's like, that's our working house. Yeah, literally. They're like, we do laundry in there. We bake bread in there. We get water from there. We have tools in there. That's where the kids sleep. That's where <laughs> I sleep. Like it's... The horses sleep in the house, though. The horses are in the house. So... <laughs> So the Gruber Gabriel family were the owners of Hinterkaifeck, and they had been for nearly three generations. The patriarch of the family, Andres Gruber, was a relatively successful man. His farm's primary use was pastoral, but the family was self-sufficient. They had successfully established local trading links for food and common goods. The family was not necessarily the wealthiest in all of Bavaria, but they lived comfortably. Andreas had a wife named Cecilia, who was nine years his senior, 63 and 72 years old, respectively. Old. (laughs) Old. Old Um, versus old. (laughs) They had one adult daughter, 35-year-old Victoria Gabriel, and Victoria was a widow. Victoria's husband, Carl Gabriel, had died while serving in World War I by shell attack in France sometime in December of 1914. And so, you know, World War One shell attacks were attacks in which a bombardment of large projectiles were fired from a ground-based artillery weapon. And these projectiles, unlike bombs or missiles, were dangerous in the sense that they contained a multitude of different contents, but they were usually chemical or filled with shrapnel. Mm-hmm. So um, he, like, died. Yeah, he, like, exploded. Yeah, like he, <laughs> like, he was, like, yeah. So, Carl and Victoria Gabriel's daughter would be born in 1915, not long after her father's death. She was named after her maternal grandmother, Cecilia, but was fondly nicknamed Celie. Celie was described as meek and shy. She went to school six days a week, Monday through Saturday, in Weidhoven, and attended church every Sunday with her family. Celie was a child prone to illness, and it was not uncommon for her to be absent from school every now and again due to her chronic colds. Victoria had another child, a young baby boy named Yosef. Yosef was less than three years old and was born out of wedlock sometime in 1919. Whore. Out of wedlock? (laughs) Okay, well... Do you think I was calling the baby a whore? Um, no. But on March 31st, 1922, uh, all five members of the Gruber family, as well as their very unlucky maid, would all be killed in a deranged attack by an unknown assailant whose identity remains a mystery to this day. I guess I shouldn't have called her a whore so quick. <laughs> yeah. That's my bad. <laughs> and you're also going to feel bad about it later, bad too. Timing. Yeah. <laughs> so that's Hinter Kaifek. Goodbye. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> They're dead and she's a harlot. This isn't a YouTube short. No. 
Well, let's talk about the Grubers. Yeah. So before we jump into any of the grisly and tragic details of this case, we'd like to go back and take a closer look at who the Grubers were and see how and why these people were targeted and victimized in this heinous crime. When it comes to reputation, it can be argued that the Grubers were not well-liked by the community. They were hardworking and active in their business matters, but were reclusive in their private lives. Modern-day retellings of the Grubers often refer to them as being stoic, cranky, and inhospitable. They were not generous people and were often said to have been secretive and grubby with their money. I mean... Whores. Oh, whores. <laughs> oh, it's... Oh, you're not going to give me any money? Uh, like... Fucking bitch. <laughs> it's fair to assume why the Grubers were like this, though. Day-to-day -day life in 1920s Germany was a difficult time. It was an era of war, famine, growing economic instability, and political turbulence. Through Germany's struggles, the Grubers prioritized working hard. Everything they earned, they earned on their own. They were not charitable to their neighbors or community, and they simply seemed as if they subscribed to a dog-eat-dog -dog sort of mentality. Right. And I also feel bad because we really shouldn't be shitting on them too hard because it's not necessarily the family. I think there's one person who deserved to die and it, no mm -hmm. one else. <laughs> yeah, that I know of, yes. <laughs> but I feel bad about shitting on them. But let's continue. <laughs> well... I'm going to shit on dead people because this is over 100 years ago on a farm. So. Okay, let's shit. Here we go. A local farmhand would speak of the Grubers and say, quote, They were very diligent and frugal. They lived very withdrawn lives and, if possible, avoided any interactions with other people. The Grubers were not kind people to outsiders, and it was rumored that they were just as bad behind closed doors. Specifically, and I think this is the one you were saying, it's yeah. fine if he dies, Andreas Gruber. Yeah, Andreas Gruber deserves to die. Oh, deserved to die. <laughs> he deserved it. Andreas was said to have had quite a mean streak and could be vicious at times. It was rumored he regularly beat his wife, his daughter, and his grandchildren. Andreas and Cecilia had supposedly borne more children than just their daughter Victoria, but these children failed to survive and died relatively young, some say because of the violent abuse. Lorenz Schlittenbauer, one of the sons of the nearby Schlittenbauer family farmstead, would tell the police a few disturbing and detailed memories from his boyhood, which stuck with him well into his adult years. He would say, quote, The children probably died from lack of care and never being fed enough. I myself, and also my father, had often experienced hearing the children locked in the cellar for days as we passed by the farm. I will tell you frankly, the people were not good. When it came to the elderly matriarch of the family, 72-year-old Cecilia did not have it any better as she was forced to be a helpless bystander. To put it simply, Cecilia's life had not been easy. She was raised by an abusive father who beat her relentlessly, and she would go on to marry her first husband who was just as violent. Cecilia, however, was not a delicate flower of a woman. She was described as tough and busy. Cecilia's first husband died in 1885. After his death, she inherited the deed to Hinterkaifeck. She would marry Andreas Gruber only a year later and would pass the ownership of Hinterkaifeck to him. Cecilia would give birth to their daughter, Victoria, in 1887. The Gruber's only other well-documented child was their second daughter, Sophia. Sophia was born not long after Victoria, but died when she was only two years old. Victoria would end up surviving through the abuse and into adulthood. The abuse Victoria endured by her father was not only physical, but apparently sexual as well. Victoria, tall, slender, and pretty, married her husband, Carl Gabriel, in the spring of 1914 and quickly became pregnant. It was said that Carl and Victoria's marriage was incredibly unstable. This was primarily due to Andreas's hostility towards Carl and self-righteous possessiveness of his own daughter. 
It was rumored that Andreas not only laid hands on his wife and children, but had gone as far as to beat Carl as well. Could you imagine that? Getting married to like, first of all, a lot of these marriages that we're talking about now are purely business. Yeah. Like your husband dies and then you get married right after. Mm -hmm. Like, so you... It's like, who's going to take care of my farm? I got to marry some dude. Basically. And same thing with like the, like Carl Gabriel. Like, could you imagine being like, hey, like your parents are like, hey, this is a business marriage. Then you're like, okay. And then the fucking old ass patriarch just beats the shit out of you all the fucking time. And he's like beating everyone around you. <laughs> you're like, this is the worst. You're like, oh my God, is it really worth it? This farm will be mine one day, so I guess it is. Yeah. <laughs> this farm's all I have at this point. Um, yeah, he would ultimately be drafted in 1914 and killed in combat before the end of the year, leaving Victoria a pregnant widow seven months after her wedding day. Victoria was the one Gruber who was somewhat liked around town. She was most known for her participation in the church choir, where she could be singing every Sunday singing the praises of the Lord. Hymns, 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 hymns. Hymnus. Hymnus. The Deutsche Hymnus. Deutsche Hymnus. How does that sound like? Oh, mein Gott. Oh, mein Gott. <laughs> good. Ich, that was good. Ich nicht eat my chaisa. <laughs> mein Gott. Mein Führer. Oh, stop. No, no. What, what does Führer mean? Do you know what that word means? Hey, Siri. <laughs> hey, Siri. What does Führer translate to? Oh, it's a... German bitch. A ruthless, tyrannical leader? What? I think that maybe. Hey, Siri. It used to mean leader. It used to mean leader? Okay, then Then God is a Führer. You believe God is a Führer. Okay. Um. <laughs> yeah, I think they changed it. Okay. It has a different connotation now. <laughs> Abby, you can't just be going going around saying that now. <laughs> I'm going to say that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, God. Uh, technically, Jesus Christ was a Fuhrer. I don't even know if we're going to keep this in. You're, you're lost. <laughs> you can do Fuhrer, but <laughs> I can't. So. Anyway. <laughs> um, so Victoria was known. She was known for her Fuhrer singsin every Sunday. <laughs> Um, but her reputation would be tarnished forever. In May of 1915, Victoria and her father would be arrested and sentenced to one month in jail after they were accused and found guilty of having an incestuous relationship. Yeah. Uh, relationship, quote unquote, because whether it was consensual is unknown and probably unlikely. Yeah. It's fair to assume that Andreas's sexual deviancy toward his own daughter did not begin in her adulthood. No, he's a piece of shit. No, he's a wife and child beater and a child rapist. And yeah. Yeah. So let him die. That's fine. Yeah. Uh, Years later, in 1919, Victoria would become pregnant and give birth to a boy who she named Yosef. Pretty much immediately, little Yosef was the talk of the town as it was unclear who his father was. The husband was dead at this point. Yeah. Yeah. She was unmarried still. Yeah. So Victoria would claim that little Yosef's father was actually her childhood friend and neighbor, Lorraine Schlittenbauer. Multiple sources claim that Lorraine Schlittenbauer's name was clearly written on little Yosef's birth certificate as his father, but we, as in you, yeah. were unable to find any proof. Yeah, I can't, I just, it's just not, like... you telling me you can't dig up, old, you know, 100-year-old German birth, rural birth records? Mm-mm. <laughs> not even... Fuck do we not, keep you around for? I mean, there are th- a lot of things that got lost from this case not just a birth or death certificate 
Why? It's not like it's not like anything significant happened in this time period. If you enjoy our content, please rate, review, and consider becoming a patron by visiting patreon.com slash radiograve. You can also support us with a one-time donation by visiting buymeacoffee.com slash radiograve. Your patronage and support helps us continue to create content for you. You can stay up to date with us by following our Instagram account, Radiograve Podcast. Thank you for listening. So... Little Yosef, born. It's not verified that um, Lorenz Schlinbauer was the father, but supposedly his name was on the birth certificate. Yeah. But it made sense why Lorenz Schlittenbauer would be Yosef's father. <laughs> Lorenz's wife passed away in 1918, leaving him behind as a single father. Lorenz and Victoria would end up beginning a physical relationship hot off the heels of his wife's funeral. Like on her casket. <laughs> so yeah. So fast. They're, in fact, the... The Emmys, they didn't even take away the body yet from the scene of death. <laughs> like, he waited for them to call it. They're like, mm, time of death, 11 foot. And because the coroner got knocked out of the way by them fucking on the dead body. It was terrible. I was there. <laughs> you know what's interesting to me is that when we talk about business weddings, mm -hmm. the thing is that Lorenz didn't have to get remarried. Mm -mm. You know what I mean? And he also didn't have to take on a wife who was a widow who only had a daughter. You know what I mean? It seems like their relationship was not so much business, but was actually like personal in a way. Yeah, like a sincere. Yeah, because it's like if he's a business, if he's a farmer business person who obviously just gets married to do like everyone else does at yeah. this time, it would make sense that he would want to marry a young, unwidowed, childless woman mm. who would be young enough to also have more children with him preferably more sons and blah 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 like yes she was from a family that had money but she also was widowed she had a bad reputation she had a daughter she was getting older like you know what i mean it's yeah, it seems her, her family sucked and would beat them and, and lorenz knew too like he knew yeah so I feel bad about this. Stop feeling bad for that. I don't know. Well, I feel bad for Victoria because it's oh, yeah. obviously like personal. Like there were, I don't know if there was love. But, but they were, they were into each other though. I think they were very into each other. Yeah. That's why they, that's why they did a relation on top of the dead lady. I think it's just more possible that he was the father than, you know. Than the alternative. Yeah. 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 I mean, being Victoria's only known sexual partner, it seems obvious. Yeah. That Lorenz was the father. Yeah. But they decided it would be best for the two of them to marry. Right. Because they were having a baby. Yeah. Um, but Andreas refused to wet her off. Andreas would end up going as far as to lock Victoria up in a wardrobe on the day Lorenz came to ask for her hand in marriage. He's like, no, you can't have my sex slate. I mean, my daughter. It's just I'm like... lock her up in this closet. He's like, can I please just like marry? We're, we're already going to do it. Yeah. He declared he and his daughter wanted nothing to do with Lorenz Schlittenbauer. Get off my porch. My my daughter doesn't even want to see you. Me and my slave daughter don't want you. We don't even want like, you I don't want, here. I don't want she, you either. She told me. She told me to tell you because I told her to. Yeah. <laughs> she's like, help, help me. Help me. I'm locked in the wardrobe. <laughs> and she's not locked in the wardrobe. I wonder, I mean, if I was fluent in German, I would know, but I wonder what like a, like a backwoods rural, like 
German redneck would sound like. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I would like to know, though. Me too. But uh, anyway, without a proper marriage, Lorraine Schlittenbauer would be subject of local gossip and would also be forced to pay a child support fine, which was a relatively large chunk of money. Yeah. Like, because she literally already had the baby and yeah. his name was on the birth certificate because they were going to get married. And then right. Andreas was like, no, that's not happening. It was all set and planned. And it's like, oh, well, now he's just going to be talk of the town. And I've never thought about pay all this money. I've never thought about this before. But like on top of uh, on top of him just not wanting to give away his uh, victim. Probably wanted the money, too. Yes. The child support money. I guess I never thought of that. Yeah, because he feels entitled to everything. Right. So scorned by the Grubers, Lorenz Schlittenbauer would straight out reject the child as his own mm-hmm. and would promptly report Andreas and Victoria to the police. Um, Lorenz declared that little Yosef was nothing more than a product of their incestuous relationship. And Andreas would be jailed once again, but luckily Victoria would be spared jail time. For unknown reasons, Lorenz would go back to the police weeks later. He would confess that he was wrong before and that he was, without a doubt, little Yosef's real father. Although it's unsubstantiated, it is believed that Lorenz did not necessarily do this out of the kindness of his heart. Um, it's rumored he only retracted his statement because Victoria cried and begged him to accept Yosef as his son. Yeah. Some say that Victoria went as far as to pay Lorenz off, giving him 1,800 German marks to cover the entirety of the child support fine he would be ordered to pay as soon as he accepted little Yosef as his own. And for perspective, according to measuringworth.com, um, in 1919, one U.S. dollar was equal to 32 point 85 german marks so today lorenz's child support fine would have been between like 950 to a thousand dollars so not cheap yeah it's not pocket money you know especially in fucking famine ass germany in the 20s right another thing too is that makes me think that their relationship was personal Mm -hmm. was that he lorenz didn't have a grudge against victoria but he had a grudge against andreas right and to me, it's very clear that, like, he did, like, Andreas told him to fuck off. Mm-hmm. And he went to the police and he said, that's not my son. Andreas raped his daughter. And Yosef is the product of incest. And that's why he was jailed and Victoria was not. Because mm-hmm. Victoria was a victim. And that's how Lorenz painted it out to be. Because he does care about her. And, like, did, he, from, from your sources, does it say if he reported it as incest? It didn't say if it was an incestuous relationship or an incestuous rape. It just says that the child was a product of incest okay. between the two of them. But for some reason, she's spared. Then I would assume it, yeah. Because she wanted to marry him. She wanted to be with him. She literally had a baby with him. Yeah, and was, like, was going to marry him. And yeah. was going to escape from her father. And he was like, I'm going to make this right. But then it's like, he's like, oh, that baby isn't mine. And now we can't really get married because I already said a lot of stuff to the cops. and uh, Yeah. Like, it all got fucked up. But I think there's a reason why she didn't go to jail this time, because I think he defended her. Yeah. But it still backfired. Yeah. Yeah, it did. Without the Gruber's patriarchal support, they would come under severe financial cutbacks. Yeah. Not wanting her family to suffer, Victoria paid the child support fine for Lorenz, and they would never speak of the dramatic debacle ever again. Yeah. And Lorenz Schlittenbauer would hold no ill will toward the Gruber's, and nor would they against him. Lorenz would go on to marry a different woman, adopting her young son, who coincidentally was also named Yosef. Yeah. Bloody Yosef. All the same names in this story. Right. And Lorenz remained kind to Victoria and his little Yosef. 
he and Victoria and the son. They were on fine terms. I think it, I think it was just a situation that went got out of control. And it's like, what are you supposed to do? Yeah, with the catalyst of that being Andreas, just right. putting a wrench in everything. Well, and then Lawrence is like, I can't marry you. I can't marry you after saying all this stuff to the cops. And she's like, well, who's going to run the farm? We can't we can't afford to only have farm hands here. I can't run this farm. My mother can't run this farm. No one will marry me. Guess it has to you be know what I mean? Nasty dad. So I feel like maybe it was the only like option that they felt like they had. And I just feel I just feel bad. But also, you know, it's yeah, just it sucks all f- that they're kind of it's all fucking crazy. And, and of course, like he gets out and he's like, I'm doing this as a favor. Like I'm taking back my statement. And like, we're never talking about this ever again. Yeah. So that's some history about that. Andreas Gruber is a son of a bitch. And I never say that. Someone's a son of a bitch. Yeah. He's I think someone could say a lot of things about him. He's mostly just like a son of a bitch, dude. I mean, I was going to say like an abusive, greedy, pedophilic rapist, but also that and a sociopath. But yeah, not that sociopathy is like bad, but you know what I mean? No, but like he's bad. He's a yeah. Yeah. So, you know, now that we know what kind of people the Grubers were, but especially now that we know what kind of person Andreas Gruber was, we can finally really begin the story of the Hinterkaifeck murders. We'll begin with a series of bizarre occurrences and events which would begin in the first few weeks of the winter months of 1921. So, like stated before, the Grubers were not insanely wealthy, but they were well off and they did have their own living maid. Her name was Crescent Rieger. But Crescent is too much for me to say, so I'm just going to say Miss Rieger. Okay. So, Miss Rieger would keep the main house nice and clean for the family, cook their meals, and watch over Seely from time to time. She had been working for the Grubers for almost a year when she would begin to experience some strange goings-on in the autumn of 1921. Miss Rieger would tell the Grubers that she believed that Hinterkaifeck was haunted. Haunted? Haunted. She believed there were ghosts there. She would tell the family that she could hear the thumping and walking of footsteps in the attic above her room, which always seemed to begin around midnight. I mean, they're in the middle of the woods and there's just someone thumping around up there. Right. And it's like, what the fuck? The thumpings were so persistently loud and bothersome. They kept her up at night all all the time. Which is my uh, perspective on why I don't like ghosts. Is because they're like rude? yeah it's a huge fucking inconvenience to have ghosts like yeah you're on edge and whatever and like it's scary but it's also like you're being kept up you have to avoid certain parts of your house you you know you're hearing bangs imagine imagine if this room i mean coffin was haunted right and there were like bangings and chains clanking and all the time yeah i'd be like shut the fuck up shut the fuck shut up we're recording listen they don't care. No, because they're just remnants. So it's yeah. like, or that's how I've heard ghosts talked about, where it's just like a, um, like a stone tape. Stone tape. Are we going to go on a tangent? We can. Let's do it. So stone tape theory is like where energy gets attached to organic matter. Oh, okay. If stone tape theory says that things are on a replay. Yeah, that's okay. that's kind of what happens. Like that's where what I mean. events or people or things become attached to running water, places that are made out of like stone. Like people say that ca- like castles and shit because that natural energy cannot be destroyed and it attaches itself to the natural land. It basically is like a tape recorder. Yeah, where it just loops and loops and loops and they're not aware that you are there. Because it's an energy thing. They're not yeah. They're not intelligent. It's an energy. Right. There's nothing attached to it. It's just, it's not sentient. And that's why ghosts would bother me. Because they're just, yeah, they can't be stopped. 
Yeah, some I of can't them, be like, stop. Because some of them do know what they're doing, though. Some of them are just like, well, I have no consequences for my actions. So You think so? Yeah, I, think, I don't know that those are ghosts. Um, I mean, there are ghosts that are just bad people. Just like how there's people that are bad people. There's no people that are bad. Oh. If they're bad, they're a ghost. <laughs> okay. Let's cut it off there. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll stop there for now. Yeah. So not only did she hear thumping, but Miss Rieger also said that she could hear on rare occasions voices from time to time. She felt like she could hear other people talking. That's not good. Which I think maybe convinced her even more that it wasn't like an animal, but that yeah. it was a ghost. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, you know, she didn't keep this to herself. She told Andreas. And Andreas would check the attic multiple times for a possible intruder, but no one would ever be found. I mean, this is weeks. This yeah. is weeks and weeks and weeks of hearing people walking around, hearing people talking constantly persistently and it's not just her so he would begin to approach his neighbors andres would begin to approach his neighbors about the strange goings-on at hinder kaifek and within good nature his neighbors would try to help him you know he's an old man Mm -hmm. honestly and of course he would outright refuse and he's (laughs) like he'd be like um so there are these crazy things that are going on in my house and it's just really bothering me. I'm like, well, do you need any help? And he's like, I'm not asking for help. It's like, sir, but you came over here. <laughs> yeah, he's just kind of going over there to like offload and like complain. And they're like, okay, well, do you need help? And he's like, no. What I, are you, stupid? I thought, he, I thought he was asking them for information. Oh, yeah. He, I guess he's going over there to be like, hey, have you heard anything? Yeah. Have you seen these ghosts? You seen any ghosts lately? Yeah. He would, he, but he would. <laughs> no, he, do you need help? No. Literally, he'd he'd go over there and be like, hey, so uh, there's some weird stuff going on. I don't know. Have you seen anything or heard anything? Do you have ghosts right now or is it just us? And they're like, no, well, do you need any help? And he would go, no, and reassure everyone that he wasn't afraid and that he had his <laughs> rifle loaded and in hand, ready to shoot whoever was trespassing on the Hinterkaifeck, whether it be a man or a specter. So this so this haunting was was taking a toll on everybody. And Victoria would mention several times to the other townsfolk in Groburn and Weidhoven. You're going to do it every time, huh? Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Weidhoven. But she would go around and start telling people around town that she believed the farmhouse was really haunted. She would just be telling people that. And, you know, Andres would be like, well, I don't know if there's an intruder or someone's hiding. Everyone's like, no, it's a ghost. Victoria's like, our house is haunted. People are like, bro, the Grubers, stop. (laughs) This actually isn't too far off. This is a period of time where mysticism was like getting really popular too, like paranormal Mm -hmm. stuff. So it kind of makes sense that that they were so open about it. But when she was going around town and telling people about the haunting, she would confide that her young daughter, Celie, was being kept awake at night by the unexplained nightly disturbances and was like, my delicate daughter is being like disturbed by this. Mm -hmm. So... It's believed that because of the haunting, Celie began to miss more school than usual because she started going missing from school. She was sick all the time. She had colds and shit. But now she was being haunted. So now she was gone even more. CPS is like, literally. Mm. <laughs> yeah, she was being affected. She she wasn't sleeping. She was coming to class. And she was falling asleep in class. And her teacher was beginning to grow very concerned, obviously. And her teacher would end up asking Celie if she was having trouble at home. And Celie would respond with a really bizarre answer. And she would go on to tell her teacher that she had been up late chasing her grandmother through the snowy moonlit witchwood the night before. Which is like why nightmare your grandma? Yeah. Like, why are you running it through the forest at night chasing your grandma? Is weird. But no one knows, like, why she was chasing after her grandma or where her grandma was running from. 
I don't know if it's ghost related. I don't know if she was running from a beaten. I don't know. Maybe she's running from everything. I can't imagine she can run very fast in the snow. She's 70 something. And like habitually enduring physical abuse. Yeah. So yeah, probably not. She's hobbling. Really? She ain't running. She's hobbling. Lit early. Lit. So finally, when Miss Rieger quit, that's when Andreas kind of flew off the handle. It's like, my maid! Literally. So Miss Rieger's physical appearance was said to have been drastically different from when she first began working for the Grubers to when she left. Because when she left Hinterkaifeck, she was pale, gaunt, and exhausted. And Andreas was like, I can't. My maid is gone. What am I supposed to do? I can't cook. My wife can't cook. Our children sure as hell can't cook. Yeah. So after her departure, Andreas decided to search the attic from top to bottom, do a full-fledged investigation. Sherlock Holmes that shit. Sherlock Holmes that shit. Like harder than he had ever done before. And his extensive search of the attic resulted in nothing but dust and cobwebs. Having searched every nook and cranny only to find nothing out of place. Again. There were no signs that there was anyone or anything inhabiting the space and never had. There was nothing, but the phantom stomping persisted. Frustrated, Andreas would make the decision to examine every last square foot of his property. He was convinced that the family was not plagued by ghosts, but that they were unknowingly sheltering burglars waiting for the right opportunity to rob them. For Andreas, it always came down to money. His maid quit. It's a money thing. Mm -hmm. He can't find the ghost. Well, it's robbers. He's going to get robbed. It's a money thing. That's how it always is for Andreas. So while thoroughly investigating the farm, Andreas discovered that the door to the engine room was open and that the lock seemed to have been tampered with. Hmm. This was like on the day of the maid quitting. What happened to it? Well, he could see that the lock to the door had been literally torn off by what appeared to be some sort of crushing tool and that the wood of the door had splits and scratches from being forced open. Hmm. To Andreas's surprise, nothing in the engine room had been stolen. In fact, it appeared as if nothing had been touched at all. So that's fucking weird. It's just open. Desperate, Andreas began to speak more and more often with his neighbors, asking them if they had experienced anything or seen anyone unusual. But of course, nobody had anything to say. Nobody wanted to help Andreas. He's fucking annoying. Right. They're like, he keeps coming over and asking about ghosts. And, and I just he, want him to fuck off. <laughs> literally. And he doesn't want help and he's rude to everyone. Like he's a terrible neighbor and a man. So whatever. Yeah. He's like a horrible neighbor and they just hear him beating his family. He's like, hey, have you heard any ghosts? They're like, no, we hear you beating your family and fucking around on our property. Right. Go home. Like you're the weird one. Go home and beat your kids some more. <laughs> oh my God. Entering the year of 1922, the Grubers continue to experience more strange events in the months leading up to the fateful night of the murders. Things are escalating from ghost to not ghost, we think. We're not quite sure, but it's no longer just ghosts bumping in the night. It's a lot more. So on a particularly frosty morning, Andreas Gruber would discover a single set of footprints that tracked along the edge of the witchwood. The tracks weaved in and out of the woods and eventually led up to the farmhouse. Terrifyingly, the tracks ended at the engine room and no tracks could be seen departing. Many witnesses saw the tracks themselves, including the postman who delivered to Hinterkaifeck every day and a few of the Gruber's neighbors. That is spooky. Yeah. Like someone's I don't, in your engine room. I don't love that. I don't love that at all. So this same postman who saw the tracks in the snow would go on to share a curious story with police after the murders. 
he would say that one day when he was delivering the Gruber's mail, he would be held up by Andreas and his wife. Both looking a little concerned, the couple asked if he had accidentally delivered or possibly dropped a Munich newspaper near the edge of the Witchwood on their property. The Grubers explained that no one in their family read the Munich newspaper, let alone purchased a print at any time in the recent days or ever in the past. And they also mentioned they had never even been to Munich themselves. And the postman reassured them that he had made no such mistake and noted the strange incident. And you said it's pretty isolated out here, right? It's rural. You know what I mean? Like it's... But I mean, like, no one... Oh, the farm itself? Yeah. Nobody's walking around out there. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's their property. It's their property, and it's, like, the woods. People walk past, like, on a road, because it's, like, on the road. But no one's, like, on the back ends of their property in the woods and shit. No one's supposed to be. Yeah, I guess I just don't want to discount that someone could have just been walking around with a newspaper and... They would have probably they probably would have dropped it, like, near the road or on the road. But, I mean, I guess this was, like, on the edge of their property, like but then it's also like okay well did the postman drop it but i don't know what kind of path he took yeah Hmm. there that probably might have been like they were like well who else would be bringing a newspaper over here other than the postman makes sense that makes sense so in the days before the murders andreas gruber would mysteriously lose his house keys which just so happened to be the only set known to exist in a rage, Andreas would go to Lorenz Schlittenbauer's farm to tell him he had lost his house keys. Yeah. Lorenz would say that Andreas's tone clearly suggested that he had not misplaced the keys, nor did he think that a ghost had hidden them, but that someone had stolen them. It is unclear whether Andreas was accusing Lorenz at this time, but Lorenz would end up telling the police about this interaction, claiming that Andreas had asked him specifically if he had seen them. So this detail will be of great importance later on. Andreas seemed to begin to take his frustrations out on anyone he could, and his violent outbursts would be confessed by Seeley on March 30th, 1922. Seeley would confide in a friend from school and tell her that her mother, Victoria, had fled the farm after a violent quarrel with her grandfather, Andreas, the night before. Seely said that her mother was missing for hours until she was finally found by other family members in the darkness of the Witchwood. So again... The Witchwood is, like, the only place for these women to, like, get away from Andreas Gruber. Yeah. They're just running into the woods. And it seems that there might be someone else in the woods, too. The devil, probably? Yeah. And he's wearing leather. Ooh. And boots with spurs. Oh, my God. <laughs> and so this leads us to the day of the massacre, March 31st, 1922. After several months without domestic aid, a middle-aged woman named Maria Baumgartner would be hired by Andreas and Cecilia Gruber as their family's live-in maid. This would be Maria's first day working for the Grubers, as well as the last day of her life. It's a bad day. Yeah. It was on this night that the entire Gruber family would be slaughtered in their own home, and Maria Baumgartner would be nothing more than collateral damage. We're going to hop on a bit of a timeline here, and we're going to start on Saturday, April 1st. The day after, right? Yes, the day after. So Celie was once again absent from class. On this day, her teacher began the classroom's lesson with the Lord's Prayer, all within the purpose to grant Celie a swift recovery from her assumed bout of illness. You know, she's missing school, so she's probably sick. I don't think she's coming back. Yeah, she's sick with dead. She has an illness called mortality. (laughs) And it's terminal. (laughs) It's stage stage five, which is to say it happened already. It's done. It's done. There's no cure. 
two coffee merchants, Hans and Edward Shirovsky, would visit Hinterkaifeck on the same day. They were surprised to see that it seemed like nobody was home and every door was locked. A dog could be heard barking within the stables, along with the low grumblings and mooing of cattle. The Grubers were always home, being as reclusive as they were, and the merchants took note of this. The two men noted that they could see that the gate to the engine house was open, but felt it wasn't necessary to investigate. The merchants would then go to the farmstead of Lorenz Schlittenbauer to try and sell their goods. While speaking with Lorenz, the merchants would mention that they had just been at Hinterkaifeck and it seemed as if they had all gone. Lorenz told the merchants he was unsure of what the Grubers were up to or where they could have gone. Note, Lorenz knew Andreas didn't have his keys still. Yeah. So... He's and like, mm. all the doors were locked, so he's like, huh, where'd they go? Right. Lorenz and the merchants agreed that the Grubers were not like other people, so they brushed it off. They're like, yeah, they're weird. <laughs> they're weird. Maybe they just uh, <laughs> left the house without their keys just so they could be locked out. Yeah, right. Hours later, two unnamed hunters would arrive at Hinterkaifeck in hopes of purchasing goods from the Grubers. They too discovered that it seemed as if nobody was home. They noted that neither the farmhouse nor the bakery tool shed had any smoke coming from the chimneys. So the next day, Sunday, April 2nd, two of Victoria's friends from church would arrive at Hinterkaifeck in morning hours in order to gather her up so the trio could head to choir practice together before service. Singing those German hymns. Those hymns. Himterkaifeck? <gasps> That's Him really what happened. Himterkaifeck? What? They, too, would be met with locked doors and not a single sign that anyone was on the farm whatsoever. It would also be noticed that not a single member of the Gruber family arrived for Sunday service, but smoke could be seen rising in the distance at the Hinterkaifeck farmstead. So then comes Monday, April 3rd. Celie, once again, would be absent from class. The postman would visit Hinterkaifeck to deliver the mail, as usual, and he would notice that the Gruber's mail had been stacking up all weekend. The postman also noted that the smoke that had been seen emitting from the farmstead the day before had suddenly come to an end. People began to talk about the absence of the Grubers. Many would come to the realization that not only had they not seen the Grubers, but they had not heard the daily bustle and echoes of Andreas's farming equipment in use. Andreas Gruber was a man who never took a day off of work. Although the Grubers were not well-liked, their absence was becoming concerning. Tuesday, April 4th, a mechanic named Albert Hoffner had been hired to come out to the farm to work on some equipment in the engine room days prior. When he arrived, he found that, of course, no one was home and all the doors were locked and there was no smoke rising from the bakery or the family home. The mechanic would make his way to the engine room to see if it was open, but it too was locked. Interestingly. Yeah. After being broken, not in use, open. Yeah, note that in the days prior, it was reported the engine room door had been unlocked and ajar. Yeah. So, yeah. Who shut that door? Who locked it with a key that Andres Gruber didn't have? Whoever had his key. Albert Hoffner, being an honest man, waited for about an hour to see if the Grubers would return home, but they never did. Knowing his services were needed, the mechanic disassembled the door to the engine room in order to get to the equipment in need of fixing. He's like, mm, you're not home. I'll just remove your door. So fucking funny. I think he was paid in advance or like had done work for them before. Mm -hmm. So he's like, well, I don't want to not do it because Andreas will kill me. Yeah. Like I'm already here. Like I might as well just do it. I don't know. Whatever. Well, he didn't, he didn't do it. He didn't kill them. So yeah. I mean, he, <laughs> he performed his services for four to five hours. And then when he was done, he reassembled the door. Um, but he left it unlocked since he didn't have a key. Right. Also four to five hours. 
Yeah, it's a lot of servicing for a whole farm worth of equipment. So yeah, he just left it unlocked and he left. He not once heard or saw a single soul at Hinterkaifeck aside from the livestock and the Gruber's dog. Hmm. Hoffner would then head to the Schlittenbauer farmstead. He would then tell Lorenz that he was unable to find the Grubers, but was hoping that Lorenz would be able to inform Andreas that the work had been completed. And Lorenz agreed. At around 3.30 p.m., Lorenz Schlittenbauer would decide to send his son, 16-year-old Johann, and his stepson, 9-year-old Josef, to Hinterkaifeck to see if anyone had returned yet. He would tell police, quote, I asked my two sons to go to Hinterkaifeck farm and knock on the windows and have a look if they could see anyone inside. I also told them to let the Grubers know that the mechanic had fixed their engine. Shortly thereafter, my sons came back and they said they had not seen anyone, but they had heard something whining in the barn, along with the cattle. Later in his statement, Lorenz would tell police that this is when he knew there was something very wrong going on at Hinterkaifeck. It had been four days since anyone had seen the Grubers. The postman, many merchants, the mechanic, friends from church, and now the Schlittenbauer boys had all come and gone from the farm and saw nothing. So he knew it was time to act. And act, he did. Lorenz gathered two of his neighbors, Michael Pohl and Jakob Ziegel, to accompany him to Hinterkaifeck to investigate. The three men arrived around 5 p.m. And of course, all the doors of every building on Hinterkaifeck were shut tightly, except for the door of the engine room, which the mechanic Albert Hoffner had left open. The three men headed to the engine room and noted that everything seemed to be untouched. Nothing was out of place and it didn't seem as if Albert had meddled with anything either. The engine room led to the barn and to the men's surprise, the door to the barn was unlocked. Lorenz, being the most comfortable with the Gruber family, took the lead of the trio and was the first to enter the dimly lit barn. The first thing that the men noticed was the cattle on the far end of the barn, all of which seemed relatively calm. Other than the shifting weight of the cattle swaying and the men's hesitant footsteps, the entire building was eerily silent and there was little light left before nightfall. Lorenz began to walk past a small heap of hay, his eyes forward as he walked towards the cattle. Lorenz stumbled a bit, tripping over some small obstacle in his path, which he paid little mind to. It was then that Michael Pohl suddenly let out a sharp gasp and choked out only a few cryptic words. There's a foot. Oh. Terrible. There's a foot. Worth of cock? Oh my god. Okay. We can't. <laughs> Just because what we're about to talk about, that's all. <laughs> Concealed under a wooden board and a sparse layer of hay was the stiff, dead body of Andreas Gruber. Yeah, a cock. <laughs> yeah, do, you can do that line again. A stiff, dead cock. <laughs> um, no, it's fine. Without thinking, Lorenz grabbed the dead man's foot and pulled him out from under the hay. Both Michael Pohl and Jakob Siegel told Lorenz to let him be, but for some reason, Lorenz did not comply. Lorenz and the two men would go on to find Andreas's wife, Cecilia, their daughter, Victoria, and little Celie all carelessly stacked upon each other dead. So it's just like a pile of bodies. Yeah. Nice. Lorenz felt the need to continue to remove the bodies one by one, laying them out individually across the floor of the barn. Every single one of them had head wounds. Jacob and Michael, not wanting to view the gruesome scene any longer, retreated to the yard for sanctuary. Lorenz continued deeper into the barn and found that the set of doors which led to the stables was also unlocked. He crossed the threshold and entered the stables, and there he found the Gruber's dog, a Pomeranian, Aww. tied up and barking. 
I do want to say, just a side note, that I did try to find out what the dog's name was, and I couldn't, so. Everything was untouched, and nothing was out of place. Again, same as, same as before. The one thing that Lorenz did notice, however, was every animal in the barn and the stables, including the dog, had been fed and tended to. Even the heifers had been milked. There are two different series of events which are reported to occur next, but it is unclear which, depending on the source. The most commonly reported event is that Lorenz reconvened with Michael and Jakob in the yard and the three headed towards the farmhouse. It was then that Lorenz was adamant about searching the inside of the home with or without the accompaniment of the police. Both Michael and Jakob watched as Lorenz pulled a key from his pocket and unlocked the front door of the home. Hmm. They once again warned him, telling him they needed to contact the police. But still, Lorenz entered the home, telling the men he needed to find his son, Yosef. I mean, fair, but where'd you get that key, bud? Right. And so that's one that's one report. Okay. That's what is mostly heard. That's what's mostly reported everywhere that you read but this is a secondary reported event is that instead of meeting with michael and Jakob in the yard lorenz would enter the gruber's home through the back door within the stables i mean that makes sense yeah and then he would then beeline straight through the home to the front door and unlock it from the inside and he would then reconvene with michael and Jakob in the yard and the trail would follow lorenz as he re-entered the home Basically saying, like, I need to find my son, Yofis. Josephus? Yeah, I need to find my son, Yosef, regardless of whether there's police here or not. Yeah. So that's the two. And it's unclear which report is true. um, And that's super unfortunate. But due to the discrepancies in the reports, there is an added element of mystery to the story that we will talk about later in regards to the key and Mm -hmm. access and the child and everything. So. Once inside the Gruber's home, regardless of how they got in, the men found the last two victims. The new maid, Maria Baumgartner, was found within her servants' quarters. Her bed was empty, and her luggage from the day she arrived on Friday the 31st was neatly placed beside the nightstand, untouched and still unpacked. What the men saw first was Maria's feet sticking out from behind and partially underneath the foot of her bed. When Lorenz pulled the wooden frame away from the wall... He would find Maria's body. She was dead and had deep head wounds. This super bothered me because I know for a fucking fact that she was attacked and she was alive and she crawled under the bed to hide. Yeah. And then she died there in her last dying minutes, like crawled under the bed to hide and died. It's fucked up. I can like envision it. She's like wearing her fucking maid outfit and everything. Not like a sexy one, but. Ooh. You know. I wasn't thinking about that till just now. Um, Lastly. The remains of little Yosef were found. He had been brutally and severely smashed and mutilated. Sources claim that little Yosef was attacked so violently that the delicate crib in which he laid was destroyed along with him, with his remains amongst the debris. Oh, so it's just a bunch of smashed up wood and fabric and then like smashed up baby bits? Yeah. It's fucked. So after these additional discoveries, Michael and Jakob swiftly left Hinterkaifeck in order to get a hold of authorities. But meanwhile, for reasons the men could not understand, Lorenz decided to stay behind at the Gruber's home to tend to their animals. Because he's going to inherit them, of course. I think maybe it had more to do with the fact that I don't think he knew what else to do. Oh. I think that he's just like a farm man at heart. So. Well, in the meantime, let's talk about the autopsies. Right. 
On Wednesday, April 5th, court physician Johann Baptist Aumuller, Aumuller arrived in order to perform the autopsies on the Groovers within the barn. It may seem strange that Dr. Johann decided to perform the autopsies within the barn instead of in a morgue, but this wasn't unheard of in standard practice from this time period. Dr. Johann's full autopsy report has been lost to time, but a brief report, which had been sent via telegram, gives enough of an explanation for the cause of death and also just how brutal these attacks really were. It was believed that all six victims were struck by a heavy, blunt object, likely a farming tool, possibly a pickaxe, and there was also evidence of other wounds and bruising. So first we'll talk about Andreas Gruber. The right side of his face and head had been torn open, skull smashed, brain matter exposed and destroyed. He was dressed in only his trousers and undershirt and was barefoot. Cecilia Gruber, the grandmother, had seven large head wounds, a cracked skull, the right side of her face severely wounded and exposing bone. In addition, she had been strangled. She was fully dressed in her day clothes. Victoria Gabriel's right side of her face had been concaved, cracked cranium and multiple star-shaped head wounds. Like her mother, she had been strangled as well. She was fully dressed but was barefoot. Celie Gabriel, the little girl, had a shattered skull from a single intense blow to the head as well as her throat cut. She appeared to have been alive for several hours after her attack due to the presence of large clumps of hair found within her fists. So Dr. Johan believed that in the painful process of her slow death, she may have ripped out her own hair in extreme distress. If the family had been discovered sooner, Celie may have survived. She was dressed in her nightgown, clearly ready for bedtime. Baby Yosef had a shattered skull with his head destroyed, possibly from a single powerful, swift blow. And Maria, the maid, had the front of her face and skull smashed beyond recognition from two to three powerful blows to the head. And she was fully dressed in her day clothes and apron. Yeah, so... So they're all pretty fucking annihilated. Yeah. Though I am... I mean, not that the kids weren't, like, you know, brutally murdered. Right. But at least they weren't, like, smashed, smashed to bits. You know what I mean? What do you mean? One of them was. The baby only had his head destroyed. I mean, but he exploded. His whole body? Well, I mean, That's like, what I'm saying. Is like... Oh, like The body was pulp? left. Yeah, I, th- I thought he was just, like, a pile of ground meat. Not to be crass, but... Well, we can move on. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, let's stop talking about that now that you said ground meat. <laughs> so, Fine, we'll move on. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So, over the course of a few days... A multitude of officers and authorities arrived at Hinterkaifeck and would go on to try to piece the puzzle together. First, the police suspected that the Grubers had been dead since the beginning of the weekend. They noted that Maria's bags hadn't been unpacked from the day she arrived, which was Friday, March 31st. Maria obviously never got the opportunity to dress down into her nightclothes, meaning the murders occurred sometime before midnight on Friday, March 31st. So, according to a few mixed testimonies, it was reported that smoke could be seen from the chimney of the Hinterkaifeck Bakery and possibly the living quarters. This indicated that there was someone present within the home for at least a couple days after the night of the murders. There was also clear evidence that food had been prepared and eaten. All of the bread within the home had been eaten and meat from the pantry had been cut recently. The police also took note that over the course of the weekend, Although nobody saw anyone on the property, the murderer tended to all the farm animals and chores. 
Hmm. When it came to motive, the police immediately believed that the mass murder was the result of a robbery gone wrong. The Grubers did in fact have large sums of money on their property, and everyone who knew them seemed to be well aware of their wealth. The police interrogated traveling craftsmen, vagrants, and several inhabitants from the surrounding villages, but nothing ever came of this. This theory of motive would quickly be abandoned after the police discovered that no significant amount of money had been taken from the property. It was then theorized that maybe it was just simply cold-blooded, and the police pieced together a pretty decent theory. This story goes as such. The murderer laid in wait, hiding in the barn. After exciting or releasing a few cattle, Andreas would be lured out of the home to the barn, where he would be brutally attacked, completely off guard. The murderer would then release more cattle. One after another, they would all be lured out into the barn and all would be killed. Once the four main family members were killed, the murderer would enter the Gruber's home, killing Maria and little Yosef. Makes so, this is a sensible timeline it's not, from what we know. It's not bad. I mean, it's... It's not. It's possible. It's yes. possible. I mean, I think that they're thinking the way that cops do. So along with the police coming and going throughout the week, Lorenz could also be found still hanging around Hinterkaifeck. This is obviously strange, but he wasn't alone. In fact, a number of morbidly curious neighbors and villagers would also come to visit the home. It was rumored that not only were the bodies continuously moved, but people were actually making themselves rather comfortable within the walls of the Gruber's own home. These morbid gawkers would go as far as to lounge around for several hours and come and go as they pleased. There are reports that they had to cook their own meals in the dead family's kitchen. Why? Because they wanted to check it out. There's nothing else to do. I guess. True crime was like a really popular, like was really growing in popularity at this time too, which is really weird to think about. Yeah. It's just weird that the bodies are still there. And so they're just like hanging out. They're like looking at them too. Yeah. And checking them out. Making some lunch. Mm -hmm. Like what the fuck? Yeah. It's weird. These unwanted visits ruined any hopes of the crime scene preservation. It was clear to the police right away that the killer had stayed within the home for several days, but all evidence had been destroyed by morbid, nosy true crime enthusiasts. Fucking true crime enthusiasts. I know, they're terrible. It can be speculated that because of the destruction of evidence, the police would go on to make a critical mistake in their initial investigation. It was standard practice at this time in criminal and forensic investigation that sketches, photographs, and fingerprints be taken at the crime scene. Unfortunately, only one of the three would be done to completion. Just a few photos were taken of the bodies of the victims, excluding little Yosef, as well as a few snapshots of the property. No effort seemed to have been made to document any further evidence. So but it's like good police work there. I mean, I understand because it's like, well, all these people are here. But also like tell them to leave. Yeah. Like they need to they have to know in 1920 that they need to preserve the crime scene right wouldn't they know that um because yeah. nowadays people they're like even for like the next of kin they're like no you can't go in there yeah active crime scene active crime scene yeah but also like how much of their 1922 german forensic investigation could really help in this case oh i mean if there were prints if like, there were fingerprints of someone who didn't live there who on. knows so the uh the investigation by the local authorities is just fucked at this point so Inspector George Reingruber, Reingruber <laughs> arrived on the scene from Munich days later. Once Inspector Reingruber and his team realized how trampled the crime scene was, 
they came to the collective conclusion to just not stick around. Yeah. After only a few hours at Hinterkaifeck, the team would leave the farm completely disappointed but determined to not waste any of their precious time. Inspector Reingruber would choose to carry out the rest of the Hinterkaifeck investigation via telephone calls and telegrams. It may seem as if Inspector Reingruber had initially lacked interest in the Hinterkaifeck investigation, but it actually makes clear sense. Over 50 different law enforcement officers and officials from all over Germany willingly involved themselves in the Hinterkaifeck investigation. In our humble opinion, it's safe to say that there were just too many cooks in the kitchen. Yeah, like, what's the point? You're like, okay, well, I'm, like, a really great investigator. I'm from Munich. I'm not going to hang around all these fucking, like, villagers and police officers who've already fucked everything up. Right. There's, like, you don't there's even need no to be there. evidence to get from here anymore. No. So It's just investigative now. Yeah. Due to the nature of the crimes, Inspector Reingruber and his team knew it was paramount to take immediate action to prove to the public that they were being proactive. The team would immediately release a statement naming their first suspect, a man named Josef Bartel. Another Josef. So many Josef. Josef Bartel was a committed lunatic and convict who had recently escaped from an asylum a little over 40 miles away. He was believed to be volatile and incredibly dangerous. Inspector Ryan Gruber believed that Bartel was the most likely candidate responsible for the murders. Extensive searches were conducted in order to find the man, but all were deemed fruitless. There is an unsubstantiated story in which a local was approached by a stranger who they believed to be Josef Bartel. Supposedly, Bartel, or, you know, the stranger, was begging them for shelter and food. When the local told him where he could go, Bartel thanked them and gave them a 100 German mark bill that was stained with blood. Yeah, that seems like a pretty um, ass-backwards story, being like, oh, there was this, like, weird guy, and he was begging me for food and shelter, and then I told him to go somewhere else, and he was like, okay, here's 100 German marks. Thanks, guy. Covered in blood. Yeah. Seems like a weird story that's, like, maybe not real. What? I don't know. Just saying. No one's ever lied to the police. I don't know. It just doesn't really seem like it's not real. Huh. Well, this story, although seemingly damning at the time, later turned out to be nothing more than a tall tale. Oh, my God. I, like, totally had the foresight. Yeah, you didn't research this beforehand, did you? Mm -mm. The stranger who was believed to be Josef Bartel never reappeared again, and the local who spoke with him never came forward to give their first-hand account. Mm. In addition, no such bloodstained money was ever found circulating in Weidhofen or Groburn after March 31st. Bartel they, they know this, too, because during this time, the value mm -hmm. of German marks was changing, like, by the week. Yeah. And so, like... The uh, money was definitely moving hands a lot. Moving hands a lot. So, yeah. So Bartel was just a ghost. Not the ghost that we're looking Not for. Not the ghost that we're looking house, for. No, no, no. A ghost as in he wasn't there. He wasn't real. Um, there was never any evidence which proved he was hiding out in the area or he was involved in any way. Inspector Ryan Gruber would hold on to this belief that Josef Bartel was the person responsible for the murders for many years, but would later come under fire. Some would say that it seemed as if Inspector Reingruber had lazy tunnel vision on a perpetrator who seemed to not even exist at all. To many, Bartel was nothing more than a fringe scapegoat suspect. Yeah. Today, the theory of Josef Bartel is widely discounted and very rarely taken into consideration, which may seem strange as we speak on more of the other theories later on that are far more bizarre and unbelievable. Yeah, they do get kind of cray-cray. But I agree. I don't think it was Bartel at all. I think that was like a weird cop thing that they do. Yeah. To make it seem like they're not, you know, doing a bad job. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, in order to save face, investigators took immediate action in speaking more with the locals in order to get more leads. A reward of 100,000 German marks, which is around $54,000 today, would be offered in return for any leading information, which would eventually be increased to 500,000 German marks, which is around 270,000 US dollars today. Over 100 statements would be taken from the locals. Of these statements was one from Michael Pluckle. Ooh. Michael Pluckle, Michael Pluckle, <laughs> an artisan and craftsman who was passing by Hinterkaifeck on the evening of Saturday, April 1st. In his statement, he told investigators about how he had passed by Hinterkaifeck once in the beginning of the day and then again in the evening. Michael Pluckle's full word-for-word statement has been lost to time, but an archived record of the interviewing investigator can be found. It says, quote, One witness, Michael Pluckle, noted that on Saturday, April the 1st, the oven-slash-shed door was closed, but half open in the evening. The chimney had given out smoke in the evening, and he saw a fire in the oven and an electric torch in the forest nearby the farm. Some sources claim that Michael Pluckle had also heard the family dog barking, and that there was a foul odor coming from the bakery fire. Hmm. Bodies. Are you sure about that? Bodies. Well, there was no bodies burned. Yeah, it's a different body. Duh. <gasps> it's a mass murder. Hmm. Other sources claim that not only did he see the electric torch in the forest, but that he had also been approached by a strange figure holding a lantern, which blinded him and caused him to hastily continue on his way. How close was he to this person? That's what I always think. Like, if you're getting blinded by a lantern, by a stranger cloaked in the night, by Hinterkaifeck... He must have run up on him. Yeah. And he didn't say anything? Maybe he was scared. Maybe. That's what I mean when I said before that there was a lot of, like, weird inconsistencies with research. Mm -hmm. Is that there's stuff that's like, oh, yeah, he was walking by and he saw torches in the woods and that's it. But then, like, on Das Wiki, it's like, yeah, and he was approached and blinded and this and that. These are alleged. We don't know this for sure. But when it comes to these stories that are, like, over 100 years old, it kind of just morphs. Yeah. But that's interesting enough because... It's consistent that Michael Pluckle saw lights and smoke. Ufos? Ufos, for sure. Another statement given to the police was from a local farmer and butcher named Simon Reislala. Reislala, Reislala. Who claimed that That's he... That's a Nazi. Yeah. S.S. <laughs> Reislala. Oh, God. Who claimed that he had also witnessed something strange on the night of Saturday, April 1st. Simon Reislander was on his way home to Brunnen. 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 I don't think Germans roll their R's, but I think it's Brunnen. I thought the U has two dots above it if it's a U. Well, I don't have the umlauts on my keyboard. Oh, Brunnen. I just have to copy-paste umlauts. Oh. Anyway. I didn't, I guess, this time. I'm sorry. And I, I'm a hypocrite because Reislander and Groburn, Brunnen's in between those, and they all have mm-hmm. umlauts. Mm-hmm. So I'm a liar. Sorry. It's okay. Simon Reislander was on his way home to Brunnen a village less than three miles north of Groburn. He recalls it must have been sometime after midnight when he was passing Hinterkaifeck when he spotted two mysterious figures standing on the edge of Witchwood on the Gruber's property. The two figures were illuminated by nothing more than the moonlight bouncing off of the pure white snow. When the strangers saw Simon, they immediately turned their backs to him and walked into the darkness. Simon Reislander was confident that these strangers were responsible for the Hinterkaifeck murders. I trust Simon Reislander more than I trust 
Michael Pluckle. Michael Pluckle, Michael Pluckle. With a name like that. Well, I mean, it just makes more sense that Simon was like, yeah, I saw two people standing next to the woods. And when they saw me, they left. They left. Instead of him being like, I saw someone with a lantern. Oh, I ran away. And it came up to me. And, and, and. Yeah. (laughs) So those are just a couple people who are like, oh, I saw these strange people. I saw these figures. I saw these things. But let's really talk about who done it. While many of the locals were eager to interview about what they had seen and heard, just like Michael Pluckle and Simon Reislander, there were many who were also willing to give their own personal opinions and theories. Many were just as eager to start playing the blame game. After all, there was 500,000 German marks for the grand prize winner. I mean, that's a good prize. Yeah. Who are you gonna who are you gonna blame for this so you can get some money? So Almost immediately, investigators would catch wind about a few possible suspects, and they collectively agreed that the Bickler brothers could have very well been involved. Anton and Carl Bickler were well known in the area for being nothing but trouble. The two had actually been convicted in recent years for a multitude of petty thefts. Miss Rieger, the Gruber's previous maid, was the first to go to the police with the suspicion that the Bickler brothers were responsible for slaughtering the Gruber's. She explained that her and Anton Bickler had been in an intimate relationship and knew him well. She said that Anton had helped with the potato harvest on Hinterkaifeck and therefore knew the premises. Miss Rieger would also say that Anton talked to her at length about the Grubers and would often suggest that the family ought to be dead. That's a, that's a bit yeah. much. But guess what? He liked animals. Miss Rieger... <laughs> Because Miss Rieger also emphasized in her interview that the family dog who always barked at everyone never barked at Anton. Hmm. Well, dog wasn't barking. Though someone said the dog was barking. Well, tied up in the stable. Well, yeah, I'd, I'd bark too. I don't think that the dog would have alerted the Grubers. It's not really its job. Its job is to just be a Pomeranian. Yeah. My, my job is to be cute and be held and have a haircut like a bear. And Same. <laughs> I mean, if it was Anton and he was friendly with the dog that's probably why he didn't kill the dog he didn't kill any of the animals also but we don't even know if he could if he killed anybody any other also we haven't talked to them in a while but shout out to our friend anton <laughs> yes <laughs> if you're listening shout out it's like Absolutely. the second time i've heard your name in anything other than your name <laughs> other famous antons yes this one that might have been a murderer but an animal lover really the best case scenario for a person <laughs> i actually think there might be another anton coming up too really it's all antons and yosef's up in here and carl's and uh i mean these are these are pretty yeah maybe generic names for they're all the same names and they're all picked out of a hat <laughs> <laughs> when you have a son it's gonna be andreas anton or yosef, yosef jacob or, or carl yeah or carl <laughs> anyway Miss Rieger would then name drop another local petty thief named George Siegel, unknown relation to the neighbor Jakob Siegel, who was friendly with the Bickler brothers. George Siegel also worked for Andreas at Hinterkaifeck and knew the premise as well. She would say that George knew about the family fortune and often spoke about coveting the Gruber's wealth. Supposedly, George Siegel had broken into the Gruber's home in November of 1920 and had stolen a number of items. And he denied these accusations and was never arrested. Hmm. So Miss Rieger's just in there. She's like, I've known this whole time. She's a Southern German belle. Yeah. Carl and Anton Bickler would both be arrested in April of 1922 under the suspicion of the Hinterkaifeck murders. However, the Bickler brothers would end up having a very strong alibi. 
In the days before and after the murders, the brothers were away working in the neighboring town of Schrobenhausen. 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 The two were accounted for the entire time. George Siegel would be arrested and questioned as well. And George would confess that he had worked for the Grubers in the past and did know the premises well and was aware of the Grubers' wealth. However, George would vulnerably admit that he had made many mistakes in his life, but was not responsible for the killings. Fair enough. This lead over time ended up being a dead end as well. Anyone who's like, I fucked up, I'm a fuck up, and I'm and I did these things, but I did not do that thing. I feel like that's generally, yeah. Generally. I feel like it's trustworthy. Yeah. So, you know, she's name dropping everybody. Because once again, Ms. Rieger would suggest another set of brothers who may have been responsible for the murders as well. It doesn't have to always be brothers, ma'am. But it is for her. One person can kill multiple people, ma'am. <laughs> Literally. She's like, God damn it, I'm running out of brothers. She's like, how many brothers did I fuck? <laughs> <laughs> God. She's like, I knew I fucked all these brothers for a reason. <laughs> so she's like, I'm about to get fucking 300,000 German marks that are going to fucking mean nothing. Like, <laughs> oh, I'm going to be so poor and starving. So, according to Miss Rieger, the taller brothers could have been just as responsible for the Hinterkaifeck murders as the Bicklers. By the way, that's taller, T-H-A-L-E-R. Yes. Not the brothers that were taller. We don't know that for sure. Yeah, we don't know that. That's alleged. That's alleged. And but, just because you're tall doesn't mean you know what. And just because you're tall doesn't mean you did a, a family annihilation. Yeah. Okay. Mass murder. <laughs> sure, people can do it too. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. We don't know who's taller, but we know. <laughs> but we know who the taller brothers are. Go on. Get this. Yosef and Andreas Taller. <laughs> no way. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yosef and Andreas Taller were well-known local ne'er-do-wells who had already committed several minor... Several minorities? <laughs> several minor burglaries oh. in the area before the Hinterkaifeck murders. A few months before she had quit working for the Grubers, Miss Rieger would claim that Yosef Toller would appear in her open window on a warm summer night. In the dark, Yosef Toller would just stand there, pestering and whispering at her until she acknowledged him. When she finally did, Yosef Toller would begin to ask Miss Rieger questions about the Grubers, but she would offer no answers. Okay, and also, I'm sorry, she's divulging a lot about other people. I think it says a lot about her. Yeah. That these men are coming to her window and being like, hey, bitch. Hey, wake up, bitch. Hey, bitch. <laughs> I'm going to kill these fucking people. I wish they were fucking dead. I know they got all the money and She's I'm like, in your leave window. leave me alone. She's like, okay, well, no. Tell when me you, how to get in the house. When are you going to no. do it? Because then I can quit before then. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, but you know what I mean? She's already She's already named five people. Yeah. So, but she doesn't have a job, so maybe she just needs some money. I, I feel it. Yeah. I, I understand the hustle. It's all good. <laughs> I mean, but she also knew the Grubers better than anyone know, else who was alive at that, time, at that time, other than like Lorenz. Yeah. Yeah. She was living in there. So it makes sense. When she finally did acknowledge Joseph Toller, he would begin to creepily tell Miss Rieger that he knew which family member was sleeping in which room and stated that he was well aware that the Grubers had a lot of money. She could see the silhouette of another person standing nearby, but she could not confirm the stranger's identity, but assumed that it was his brother, Andreas Toller. She's like, I don't know who it was, but it was probably his brother because they're both baddies and not in a hot girl way. They're both like criminals. She has a bad boy thing. That's her problem. Um, or just a really bad sense of judgment. She also would say that after speaking to Yosef in her window and seeing the stranger standing behind 
She said that she could see that Yosef and the stranger looked in the direction of the machine house or the engine room multiple times. Hmm. But it's like she could see them turning their heads and looking away like they were going to go over there and like do some stuff. But she also couldn't be sure whether or not it was them, especially the stranger standing behind. She like knew that it was Yosef, but like, I don't know, because unfortunately nothing ever came from this lead. And there was little to no evidence that Dollar Brothers were ever involved. Yeah. She's just kind of throwing people into the mix. So then there was a man named Yosef Betts who would come forward with claims that he knew who was responsible for the Hinderkaifeck murders. A man named Peter Weber, who was basically German. Peter Parker. Yeah. Because webs, like spiders. Spider. Yeah. Solves it. Spiedemann. Spiedemann. M-A-N-N. Yes. So... Betts would tell investigators that the two men had worked together in the winter of 1919 to 1920 as laborers, and they shared a room somewhere in Bavaria. Mm, they shared a room, huh? According to Betts, Peter Weber spoke of a remote farm called Hinterkaifeck and would divulge that he knew that one old couple lived there with their daughter and her two children. Mm. It is speculated that Peter Weber may have been aware of the rumors surrounding Andreas Gruber and his daughter's incestuous, quote, relationship. Betts claimed that Peter Weber had suggested killing the old man to get the family's money. But when he did not respond to the offer, Peter Weber stopped talking about it. I mean, that kind of that kind of makes sense. Like if if you're you know, it's old, old school Germany and they're like, yo, there's like these really nasty old fucks and like the the dad and the daughter are fucking and it's like so gross. We should kill them and take their money straight up. Literally. That's like, like I could see that if, if yes. that's how you would heard it through the grapevine. Yeah. You're like, fuck that. Yeah. Ain't nobody going to miss these old people with their kids fucking them like no and yosef is like um i'm, I'm fine i don't think about that stuff and peter's like yeah neither do i i've never that's so fu- i don't even know what you're talking about I don't even Where, what's hinter hinter what i'm <laughs> hinter what's you gonna call i'm just in a silly goofy mood what's up what's up you wanna um let's go work more let's go let's go labor <laughs> we love laboring <laughs> do you want to talk about laboring more <laughs> so let's uh let's move back to another person we've talked about already right um so while the police did in fact investigate a multitude of suspects um mostly brothers that were in that were all having sex with Miss threesomes, yeah <laughs> um there was one suspect that was heavily implicated you can probably guess and scrutinized by the investigators and the community alike and that was loren schlittenbauer yeah Many believe that Loren Schlittenbauer is the only person who could have been responsible for the Hinterkaifeck murders, but throughout our research, we have found that although this theory is very realistic and highly likely, there are still some details and facts that have been twisted and molded to fit a narrative which is not totally honest. So, without further ado, we will talk about Loren Schlittenbauer. He was considered to be the number one suspect for the murders. Many speculated that because his farm was just on the other side of the Witchwood, it would have been easy for him to come and go as he pleased without being noticed. Lorenz did have a familiarity with the farm, but this is due to the fact that Lorenz grew up next to the Hinterkaifeck farmstead. He knew the Grubers very well, and he also knew Victoria very well, obviously, and he had helped Andreas Gruber on his farm before, probably multiple times. Yeah. Many point to Lorenz's behavior when he discovered the bodies of the Gruber family. As we all know, People act strange when they come into or discover a dead body. Some go into a sort of psychological shock and others go into a panic or mental breakdown. Lorenz, for one reason or another, seemed to have been in a state of disbelief. 
Lorenz decided that he needed to, above all else, pull out every single body from the hay, against the well warnings of Jakob Siegel and Michael Pohl, telling him they needed to not disturb the crime scene. Within the sight of two witnesses, Lorenz couldn't help himself from disorienting the bodies and the surrounding area. Without any sort of hesitation or fear, Lorenz would go on to search the rest of the barn as well as the stables, and this was the opposite response of what Jakob and Michael decided to do. Jakob and Michael decided to leave the barn untouched and go get help. Jakob Siegel would mention to police that right after discovering the bodies in the barn, Lorenz's behavior was abnormal, and he seemed to have had strange priorities. Jakob would say, quote, Paul and I immediately told Schlittenbauer that when he found the bodies, that he should be careful to leave them as they are, but he replied he had to see things for himself. He then told me to feed the cattle, but I told him we were going home and reporting to the police. He was very busy. He went straight to the cellar to fetch milk and feed the pigs. On the way home, Paul and I said nothing. It was very striking that Schlittenbauer changed everything that could have been changed and knew exactly where everything in the house was. In my opinion, Schlittenbauer did not often go to Hinterkaifeck, as Andreas wouldn't have allowed it. I love that opinion that Jakob has. Mm -hmm. I think that what he's saying is very accurate, mm -hmm. but also Jakob doesn't fucking know anything either. True. Like him being like, I know that Andreas wouldn't have let him go into the house. It's like, well, yeah, we know what kind of person Andreas was, but also Lorenz has known Andreas his entire life. Yeah. He's known Hinterkaifeck forever. Like this is not really up to him to say whether or not it would have happened. It was happening. Yeah. And it's not like he's always, it's not like Andreas is always in the house. No. Like. They were fucking yeah, somewhere. Yeah. Victoria and Lorenz were fucking somewhere. And I don't know if it was at Hinterkaifeck, but still. But it could have been because dude is like out in the farm working all day. He's not in his house checking things and out. Victoria's like going over to Lorenz's house. Like, I'm like, they know, you know what I mean? Yeah. So he could have been in there. Who knows? It's like saying that the farm hands who were working for Andreas Gruber years before had a better familiarity than Lorenz Schlittenbauer. That's kind of what he's implying is that Lorenz would have had to have been in the house for a couple days to know where everything was. And that's why he was doing the things he was doing because he had already been there. It's like, what are you talking about? Yeah, not necessarily true. And it's a, it's a lot of, it's conjecture. a farm. There's he's not many farmer. places to put things. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's a lot of places to put things, but I mean, it's, it's a farm and things are done a certain way. I'm sure Lorenz worked for Andreas when he was a teenager or a young man. Oh, more than likely. More yeah. than likely. He helped him when he could. When we also talk about human reactions to death and trauma, mm -hmm. it kind of reminds me of a story because although Lorenz is not a child, um, his reaction reminded me of a far more recent homicide case, which took place in Pampa, Texas in 2005. Robin Doan was 10 years old when her entire family was murdered in a senseless and unmotivated home invasion. Damn. She was the only survivor. During the invasion, the killer went from room to room of the house, shooting every family member in their beds while sleeping. When the killer came to Robin's room, he shot into the darkness of her room and watched her small silhouette fall to the floor after she tried to jump out of bed. He missed her, and although she was afraid, Robin just pretended to be dead. Smart. Smart. And she stayed frozen in that position until morning. And when she was finally able to ensure that the killer was no longer in the house, she immediately called 911. So when the police arrived, Robin was extremely distressed. Of course. Right. 
And she told the dispatcher and the officers that she knew her entire family was dead. But amongst the chaos, she told the sheriff that she needed to feed her animals as it was part of her morning routine. My point is that people's immediate psychological trauma responses vary from person to person, but this is not an excuse for Lorenzo's poor decisions in the moment after he discovered the Gerber's remains. Yeah. It's more so like, this is what I do every day. This is what kind of person I am. I'm a farmer. I have all of this, all of these dead bodies in front of me, but these animals don't seem like they've been fed. Yeah. There's comfort in routine. And you're just going to kind of do like what needs to be done. You can't do anything about bringing them back to life. But you can make sure that but you can make sure the animals the cows don't are die. Milked. Yeah. Or, you know, like, let's just feed the animals. That's kind of what he did. Mm-hmm. And he started taking care of the farm. And I think that's also maybe a neighborly thing to do, too. Like, oh, my God. Yeah. Like, well, someone's got to feed their, someone's gotta feed their animals. Yeah. Someone's got to feed their animals. Someone's got to. But, of course, Jakob and Michael would think, like, oh, my God, we just found dead bodies. We're leaving. They right. don't have a connection the, the way that Lorenz did. Yeah. Their reaction is going to be quite different. Imagine walking into a barn and you find four dead family members of a five-person family plus a maid. Right. And then the first thing he's like, he's like, Jakob, go right. get the milk for the pigs. And he's like, no, dude, I'm actually going to fucking leave. Yeah, I'm running by. I'm running by. I'm going to go get the police. And he's like, don't leave. Help me do this. It's yeah. like, no. So that is weird. Well, and speaking speaking of that, he knows his, his son is there. Yes. Right? So when it comes to... Lorenz entering the home, Jakob and Michael Pohl reported it seemed odd that Lorenz was adamant about it, about entering the home. So whether he entered through the back door stables or the front door isn't known, but what is known is that, like stated before, he had great concern for the well-being of little Yosef, whom he referred to as my son, to Jakob and Michael. So when Lorenz was questioned by the police about his carelessness about the crime scene and entering the home without a second thought, he said, quote, I was so worked up that I didn't think of anything. I assumed my boy had to be starving. Even if I wasn't completely sure that he was my child or not, I still felt compassion for him. And I wanted to look after him at once. And there I found my son laying in the stroller with his head shattered. Like, so, I mean, yeah, it, it makes sense that he was like, I got to get in there. Because he knows that there's another person. And yeah. that other person is someone that he views as his son. And I mean, and also, like I said, like 100 years ago, translations suck. There's so much stuff that is missing. There's so much stuff that it can never be recovered because it's destroyed. And we'll mm-hmm. talk about that. But it's like, it's very, very possible that he could have been like, Jakob, Michael, I need you to tend to these cattle. So I, I need to go find my son. Like, it could have even been like that. I don't want to give him too long of a leash. But the fact of the matter is, is that like, Lorenz did things that he shouldn't have done. Yeah. But he the reason why he did them was because he felt like he had to and i'm okay with saying that and it's sad that he was looking for his baby it is sad um there was some speculation that the baby yosef was the cause for the murders right um many believe there was a possibility that victoria had been demanding more child support money from lorenz By this time, Lorenz had remarried and was caring for his new wife and stepson as well as his teenage son and was not struggling financially. The Grubers had plenty of money themselves, probably more than the Schlittenbauers. Right. They had let everything go. Yeah, that was like in the past at this point. It was like like a non-talking point. There's like, okay, that's done. Whatever. We settled it. Everyone was done talking about it. Because the paternity of little Yosef was such a hot topic for so long... 
it can be argued that nobody was asking anyone for money. (laughs) So um, to let sleeping dogs lie, move on with their lives, Um, especially Victoria, who was least concerned about money as she was a very devout Christian. Yeah. Um, Victoria was so devout that it was believed she may have donated 700 German marks, which is 350 USD today to the church in Weidhofen only two weeks before the murders. She donated all that money at once, like two weeks before she died. Right. So it's like... They they weren't hurting for money. No. Well, and although it was never proven that it was her, mm-hmm. the pastor from the church stated that he felt that it couldn't have been anyone else because Victoria was so devout and she was the only person who had money. It's like... They're like, who's really devout and has a lot of money? Oh, it's Victoria, we- yeah. Yeah, it's weird to think that Yosef was motivation for yeah, the murders. For, for just like an extra, like thousand bucks i don't think it's relevant no lorenz schlittenbauer did a lot of things that were very suspicious but he had solid alibis it was rumored that lorenz decided to quote sleep in his barn on the night of the hinderkaifeck murders but this isn't true quote people like to talk it is not true i was with my wife (laughs) i was with my wife in my race car bed The night of the murders was not the only time he was with his family. In fact, over the course of the four days that the Grubers were missing, Lorenz had a solid alibi for basically every single moment. Yeah. Lorenz Schlittenbauer also suffered from asthma, and some say that his asthma would have inhibited him from carrying out the Hinterkaifeck murders. I'm guessing it was, like, very debilitating asthma. Well, on that, too, I didn't mention it in the document, but that's why he sent his sons to go to Hinterkaifeck because even crossing oh. through the Witchwood was a little bit laborious for him. Over the years, his asthma got worse. Mm-hmm. And as he got older, his older son started doing more work. Mm-hmm. They started sharing more duties because his father's asthma was getting so unmanageable in 1922. So that's why he sent his sons over. Like, that's why he, like, maybe couldn't have even done it because, I mean, could you imagine doing that? That's a lot of work. For someone with asthma. Yeah. Strangling people, bashing people, like, no. Well, it's not to say that they moving, can't, but in a time... Moving bodies around, it's not for one person who has asthma, no. Well, in a in a, in a a time and area where some farmer is not going to have a fucking state-of-the-art inhaler. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, asthma is very treatable. Yeah. But mm, probably not as much then. Like you're not in nineteen twenty two Bavaria. One, you're living on a farm. Yeah. That's bad enough for your asthma. Yeah. And then two, you don't have really much in the way of medicine, I'm guessing. So mm-hmm. yeah, he's probably a very wheezy man. He couldn't even walk through the witchwood yeah. to get there. He's a pretty feeble old man, is what you're telling me. Not an old man, but a middle aged feeble man. He was definitely older than Victoria, yeah. but he he was older than Victoria by like a lot. But the asthma thing for me, it kind of closes it for me with him. Well, yeah, I mean, he was never arrested. <laughs> yeah. Um, the investigator's final report on him as a suspect read as follows. Quote, Subsequent to interrogations, there were some inconsistencies in Schlittenbauer's statements that were revealed. He, however, presented his answers in such a way that legitimate doubts about his guilt have to arise. He repeatedly declared his innocence in tears and declared that he was well aware that he was a suspect in the area, emphasizing that this was chiefly due to his energetic involvement as a local guide and his willingness to help. There are no indications for further action. Which is kind of a weird statement to me. Why? Because they're like, oh, we interrogated him and he was inconsistent and he was answering in a way where we doubted him. Uh, But then he cried, so we just didn't 
go any further. I think it's also written shitty because it's a translation of 1922 German. But I think that it is like really brief where it's just like we interrogated him over and over and over again and there were inconsistencies and we brought it to his attention. However, he like always presented answers, but we still felt thought he was guilty and he would cry and he would say that he understood why he was being suspected. And it just seems like maybe they're just like, this guy's pathetic. He didn't do it. Like, I don't know. Like, it just seemed yeah, like he just was like being kind of bombarded and and was under a lot of stress with the interrogations who knows i mean i say swell i I swear i I didn't didn't do it it. and this guy's stressed out and he was like i understand that i'm a suspect because of everything that i did i made all these mistakes and i you know so i don't know i'm a defender of lauren schlittenbauer i don't think that it was him i think he's the last person who would have done it so we know it wasn't Lynn Schlittenbauer. Lauren, I mean, you know. I think it wasn't Lauren Schlittenbauer. I don't know about the, all the brothers that the maid fucked. <laughs> I don't think it was the crazy guy that never existed. What if... But what if it was something else? Elion's? Huh? Elion? 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 E.T.? No, I'm thinking more like the dead husband. Fantasme. Fantasme. Spectre. Was it a ghost? Poltergeist? Polter Gabriel? <laughs> That's good. Thanks. That should have been the name of this chapter. <laughs> there was one outlandish suspect who was quite seriously taken into consideration <laughs> by the Bavarian police. Oh, really? They investigated this. Carl Gabriel, Victoria's dead husband. Wow. Almost a month after the Grubers had been slaughtered, a letter sent by the Schrobenhausen Police Department was received by Inspector Reingruber. Dated April 22nd of 1922, in a very rough translation, the letter would state, and I mean, this is so rough. I had to piece this together. This was a piece of shit. Did you have to, like, Google Translate it? I had to look at the translation, look at the original German, and then Google Translate, and then look at a secondary translation to understand what the fuck this said. Okay. Because it was just broken everywhere. I think it maybe was in Morse code. I don't fucking know. Anyway. Or maybe the original translator just... Oh, it, but you had the original as well. Yeah. So this is this is a kind of... This is kind of what I got all together from this. Okay. It says, quote, After the comprehensive investigation into the murder case has hindered to produce no result, I would urge the police authority to make inquiries at the care centers in Munich as well as other offices in Bavaria into whether or not the husband of the murdered owner named Carl Gabriel is still living. A death announcement dated 12-12-1914 was published in the Schrobenhausen Weekly and claimed Gabriel had fallen in combat. His death should be confirmed as to be sure Carl Gabriel had not returned with prison transport just before the murders occurred. You see all those brackets? Yeah, so I'm looking at uh, I'm looking at your research notes and they're <laughs> even just like little just like single words like named into like yes because literally like, like there, all... there's like a whole sentence that's just like a group of brackets yeah where you had to piece together jesus fuck yeah like literally i mean i think i i'm guessing the point got across where uh, they're, they're saying like to someone i don't know it's it sounds like this person is saying you should make sure that he actually died because there's a death notice but he might have come back from the war right it's basically like basically what it said it said 
after a comprehensive investigation into the murder, nothing has been produced as a result, we want to urge you to maybe check in at like care centers or hospitals in Munich or in other places in, in Bavaria to be sure that the husband that had died, Carl Gabriel, the husband of the owner, Victoria, may be still living, may have survived World War One. We're not even sure if he really died or not. We don't really have any proof. All we did was put in a death announcement. So he could have lived and maybe he killed them. It's like, what? Well, he's not a ghost then. I don't think he's a ghost. He may have just come back. But this is actually kind of interesting because the police like were really desperate and they took it. <laughs> they took it and ran with it. <laughs> even even after this whole like tangent that I just went into about this, that's like was so annoying to me. I understood because then they they really thought that it was a possibility that Carl Gabriel never died in the war. And I mean, that happens. It does People's happen. People's deaths get reported from the overseas shit oh, yeah. and then... Right. Well, and they were like, well, no body ever came back. And it's like, because there was no body. But you know what I mean? So we'll go into that. But they were kind of into it. They speculated that there was a possibility that Carl Gabriel had never loved the Grubers. He never loved Victoria. Fair. So the Gabriel family knew that the Grubers were wealthy. They also knew once Victoria Gruber was wed, the deed to Hinterkaifeck would be signed over to her and her husband, becoming the new owners. So because of this, many outsiders saw... Like we said, Carl and Victoria's marriage is more of an opportunistic business move rather than a bondage of love. Mm-hmm. Like stated before, Carl and Andreas did not get along. Andreas fucking beat him. Yeah. Like he beat him as hard as he beat anyone else. And allegedly, Carl got so fed up with Andreas that he at one point left Hinterkaifeck to stay with his parents for a time. And Jakob Siegel from before, who was with Lorenz and when he discovered yeah the bodies yeah mm-hmm. he would share a personal testimony in his 1952 book about the murders in regards to Victoria and Carl's marriage and he would say quote I am of the opinion again oh my god Jacob and his opinions <laughs> I am of the opinion that the couple did not have a good relationship with each other and that Carl Gabriel had married Victoria Gruber in the main for the money and the property of Hinterkaifeck fair enough so it's this a was well-earning well- farm yeah so I mean it was well known And stating right after, he implies that Carl had no other choice. Victoria was the only daughter. He wants to... It had to be done. Like, there was... He had no choice. It was going to happen. Yeah. Like, whether it was the Gabriel parents' decision or whoever, it was just going to happen. So instead of staying at Hinterkaifeck with the Grubers, Carl would end up serving in World War I. Probably, Probably gets beat less. Right. So... Yeah. And... While many men dreaded being drafted, it is rumored that Carl Gabriel willingly enlisted in the army in order to get the hell away from the Grubers. Carl Gabriel would rather risk death than Andreas Gruber. And death is what he was granted. He was like, I'm not going back. Like, it says that he was drafted, but it also says that he ran away and did not want to come back, so he enlisted. Fair enough. (laughs) And, you know, shell attack, body explode. And there was nothing ever that was brought home to the family. So without a body, it could be possible that Carl may have survived and escaped or was a prisoner of war. Mm -hmm. So it's theorized as follows. After years of absence, Carl Gabriel would finally find his way home to Hinderkaifeck, maybe even with the hopes of having a happy reunion with his wife and meeting his daughter for the first time. Instead, Carl would arrive to find that Victoria had given birth to a child very recently, but was unmarried. 
Piecing the puzzle together, Carl would discover that little Yosef was a product of incest between Andreas and Victoria. Disgusted, Carl would fly off the handles and murder his entire family in a blind rage. To some, this theory seemed to make sense. But it would just quickly fall apart because he's dead. <laughs> Is he? I don't know. Maybe. I don't I mean by now. I'm sure. I mean, think of it. If he had lived, why would he go back to Hinterkaifeck? Um why would he not just go back to his parents? Maybe he would hope that Andreas was dead already by then. Maybe. So he could be like, Oh, finally, now I can take over this farm. Right. <laughs> to put it simply, there was not a single shred of evidence that showed that Carl Gabriel was alive at any time between his death date in December 1914 and the Hinderkaifek murders of March of 1922. In fact, not only was Carl dead, but there were many documented statements collected from other soldiers and officers claiming that they had seen Carl die on the front lines and that he was actually super fucking dead. He was like, they were like, he's dead, he's dead, he's dead. He did not survive. So... As it seems obvious that Carl was certainly not the culprit in the Hinterkaifeck murders, the theory would reemerge many years later. After the end of World War II, a few soldiers who hailed from the Schrobenhausen region were released prematurely from Soviet captivity. And these soldiers claimed that they had been sent home by a German-speaking Soviet officer who claimed to be responsible for the Hinterkaifeck murders. Hmm. However, some of the soldiers later revised their statements, which diminished their credibility. And so people, maybe not at this time, but people now, theorize that the Soviet officer in question may have been Carl Gabriel. I don't know about that. I think that they would have fucking killed him. Why would they be like, yes, German prisoner of war? I think that that didn't happen. I did not think, I, you know, it's very, you know, but there could be a, a Soviet officer who did commit the murders. Or it's a ghost. Or it's a ghost. A real ghost. I don't think that... And not an MIA ghost. Yeah. But a real ghost. But a real ghost. Is that ever speculated in this document? Mm, no, I don't think so. So let's let's switch tack away from suspect exactly. Mm-hmm. Talk about the murder weapon for just a second. At first, the murder weapon in the case was believed to have been a farming tool, specifically a pickaxe, right? Makes sense. Explode heads with that. Yeah. When the Grubers were discovered in the barn, a pickaxe would be found near their bodies, but it lacked any blood stains to indicate that it was the actual murder weapon. Mm. So, in February of 1923, after an entire year of battling for the Grubers' property inheritance, the courts would settle on Andreas Gruber's brother, Bernard Gruber, as the rightful new owner of Hinterkaifeck. It's not clear whether or not Bernard Gruber was legally battling with other members of the Gruber family or if he was forced to primarily take on the Gabriel family, but it can be well assumed that it was the latter. Hinterkaifeck's rightful owner at the time of the murders was Victoria Gabriel, the only daughter of the Gruber family who had owned Hinterkaifeck for three generations. Although her last name was Gabriel, she had been widowed for about eight years. It's clear that her full ownership of Hinterkaifeck greatly outweighed her dead husband's previous status as owner. Obviously, because he's dead. Right. And like stated before, Carl Gabriel only married Victoria for the money and the inheritance of Hinterkaifeck. It can be assumed that there was a possibility that the legal battle between Bernard Gruber and the Gabriel family was spiteful and tiresome, especially when you take into consideration the following events. After inheriting Hinterkaifeck, Bernard Gruber would go on to immediately flip the property, selling it to none other than the Gabriel family, but only under the condition that Hinterkaifeck be fully demolished and torn to the ground. 
Note, doesn't it seem odd that there would be a legal battle for Hinterkaifeck only for it to be torn down? My theory is this. Bernard Gruber was old, and it was likely he didn't want to hold onto the place where his brother's family was brutally murdered. Bernard Gruber wanted the inheritance of Hinterkaifeck so he could sell the property and make a pretty penny and be done with it all. Fair. The Gabriel family may have wanted Hinterkaifeck to be destroyed in respect for the dead. They may have been worried the property would fall into the wrong hands or be turned into a tourist attraction or museum. True crime was actually a very popular interest for many in the 1920s, as well as mysticism. Speaking to the dead through seances and psychics was all the rage, and this is something we are going to be talking about in just a moment. So it was obvious that there was going to be someone down the pipeline who was going to be making money from the exploitation of the Hinterkaifeck murders. Bernard Gruber seemed hellbent on getting what he wanted. He would still be able to make a chunk of change from selling the property to the Gabriel family, but not before legally binding them in order to hold them accountable for following through with their demolition. This guaranteed that not only would the Gabriel family not be able to financially profit from Hinterkaifeck, but they would subsequently lose a ton of money in the process. Even if they decided to sell just the land, they would still be in the hole. Does this not seem spiteful? It does. Yeah. So legally bound by Bernard Gruber's terms and conditions, the Gabriel family immediately demolished Hinterkaifeck. But there is a bittersweet silver lining which came along with the demolition of Hinterkaifeck. Unfortunately, more bitter than sweet. During the process of the demolition, more evidence was found all around the farm. Andreas Gruber's homemade mattock, also known as a grub axe, was discovered. This mattock, although having been untouched for nearly a year, was covered in blood and was obviously the murder weapon. Right. Some sources claim the mattock was concealed within a nook in one of the farmhouse sheds, and others claim the mattock was found concealed in the attic. Regardless of where it was found, all sources agree on one single fact. The police investigators claim to have thoroughly searched the entire property multiple times, but somehow the mattock was never found. Another piece of evidence was found in the barn. Quite literally, like a needle in a haystack, a penknife was discovered buried amongst the piles of hay within close vicinity of where the Gruber's bodies were found. This penknife was suspected to be the weapon used to slash seven-year-old Celie Gabriel's throat. Both of these items had been totally missed by the police, even though they claimed that they had thoroughly searched the premises dozens of times. Obviously not. Yeah. The discovery of the penknife is especially troublesome due to the fact that the barn had been searched more than any other building on the property. Right. It's, you know, it's the murder scene, basically, essentially. So they would have torn that apart top to bottom. So why is there now just a pen among the hay? Right. Penknife, excuse me. Well, right. Like, that is is a huge issue. I think it's just kind of unbelievable. No one did what they were supposed to do. They were all kind of like... Oh, that person's doing that. Well, they said that they searched that. Well, I mean, how would they have even kept track with all the people going in and out of there? They didn't. It's very, I mean, yeah. it's very possible that one of the people who was just there gawking and hanging out was the fucking killer. And it was like, cool, they, they finished looking through it. You went? Yeah, literally. To the literally. Side literally. So it's like, not good. True, it's not good. They didn't do a good job. <laughs> there is a bizarre detail, which many people don't know about the Hinterkaifeck murders. And before researching this topic in full, I had very little knowledge of any of this, but you had very little knowledge of the weird events that I'm about to talk about. I had no idea. I was actually blown away by this. (laughs) 
After the autopsies were performed on all six victims, every single one would be decapitated and buried without their heads. Normal. Yeah. The reasoning for this was to transfer the skulls to Munich to be further examined, but not necessarily for medical reasons. After yielding no new evidence or clues back at Hinterkaifeck, the skulls were decidedly passed along to a multitude of self-proclaimed clairvoyants. Yikes. Psychic seances, psychomantium divination, and mediums communication with the dead was extremely popular in the early 20th century. Many were obsessively enthralled by the mysteries of death and the afterlife, and speaking with spirits was the best way to get a peek into the unknown. There were very few psychic mediums who were genuine, and most self-proclaimed clairvoyants were scammers who exploited desperate grievers. Unsurprisingly, the clairvoyants who claimed to have the abilities to extract metaphysical clues from the Hinterkaifeck skulls were unable to bring anything to the table. The skulls had nothing to say. Simply. Their skulls. <laughs> the Hinterkaifeck skulls remained in Munich for several years, but were subsequently lost forever after being destroyed in an air raid toward the end of World War II. And that's not the only thing that was destroyed. The bombings that occurred during this time, that's why there's not a lot to find yeah especially because there were the main investigators that were from munich all the evidence that they had everything that they had collected everything that they had filed including the heads of the dead people that they were trying to figure out what the fuck happened to them all got destroyed tons of it got destroyed it's just the way that it is anyways goodbye heads goodbye hinterkaifex skulls (laughs) right you'll be missed no they didn't they weren't that interesting anyway So, with years of dead-end leads and no clear motive and a lack of evidence forced the police to close the Hinterkaifeck case, but it actually ended up being reopened in the 1950s after a few new suspects came to light. In 1951, prosecutor Andreas Popp investigated brothers Adolf and Anton Gump in relation to the murders at Hinterkaifeck after Gump's sister confessed on her deathbed that they were responsible. In fact, Adolf Gump had already been listed as a potential suspect as early as April 9th of 1922 due to his connections to the paramilitary group Freikorps Oberland. The Freikorps Oberland was an anti-communist nationalist paramilitary group of the German Weimar Republic. The group was dedicated to defending Germany against communist uprisings during the German Revolution as well as Soviet invasion. The Weimar Republic also utilized the Freikorps to put down revolutionary uprisings, but the paramilitary group was excessively violent. A number of senseless killings and executions of innocent civilians and political figures carried out by the paramilitary group proved the group to be extremists and rogue. Many soldiers from Freikorps were criminally charged but given light sentences. When the Treaty of Versailles came into effect in 1920, Germany was ordered to minimize their military land forces to only 100,000 men, and Freikorps Oberland was ordered to disband. This order of disbandment led Freikorps commanders to consider a government coup. It was during this time that many soldiers involved with the paramilitary group carried out a string of kidnappings, murders, and the spread of anti-government propaganda. It was theorized that Adolf and Anton Gump could have carried out the Hinterkaifeck murders because of their radical connections to the then fringe group. Wait, did, so did they have connections or were they in Freikorps Oberland? Adolf Gump was listed as a potential suspect for Hinterkaifeck because he had connections. Connections. Okay. Yeah. So not necessarily a member. They believe that he was. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
But after the Freikorps coup was unsuccessful, many soldiers were imprisoned and the group was disbanded. And years later, unsurprisingly, a majority of the soldiers involved with Freikorps Oberland went on to become Nazi soldiers in World War II. Yeah, that checks out. Anton Gump was taken into custody, but Adolf, who was the brother who was suspected of having connections to Freikorps, mm. had actually already died in 1944, likely because he was fighting in the war as a Nazi. Probably. So, however, Anton was dismissed, and there was little to no proof that he had been involved whatsoever. Mm -hmm. In 1954, the case against him was finally discounted because he could not be proven to have participated in the crime. So, then... In 1971, a woman named Teresa wrote a letter citing an event from her youth. At the age of 12, a strange woman came to visit her mother. This woman claimed that her two sons from Saddleburg were the Hinterkaifeck murderers. The woman confessed that one of her sons had told her that he regretted losing his penknife while he was at Hinterkaifeck. This lead was followed without result. Interesting. Yeah. So no murderer has ever been identified in the Hinterkaifeck murder case. The last interrogations took place in 1986, just before Detective Chief Superintendent Conrad Mueller retired, leaving the case totally cold. But out of the blue, the case was reopened in 2007. And I did not know this. I had no idea about any of this. That's, yeah, that's very recent. Super recent. More recent than I would expect. Yeah. So German authorities reopened the Hinterkaifeck cold case due to advancements in forensic science. And after 85 years, these investigators claimed that they had come to the conclusion of a realistic theory in connection to a very strong suspect. Unfortunately, investigators and authorities have remained silent for 16 years in order to protect the identities of the still living family members. They have actively decided to withhold this information to the public and for good reason. As of today, it is incredibly likely that the family members of the murderer wish to remain unconnected and anonymous to the public, accepting that they come from a lineage of evil. Yeah. I mean, personally, if I had a distant relative who did that, I would want to... I, I wouldn't mind being public about it. Right. What are they going to do? Be like, yeah, I never met him. This was 100 years ago. I think that there's a lot of shame connected to this time. I don't think that... 2007? Um, No. I mean, like, before that, <laughs> oh, I don't think anyone wants to dig up anything bad that happened with their families in Germany around this time. Mm, fair. And it also, like, doesn't really serve anyone. I think that it's something that I think the only people that it would serve is, like, us, <laughs> you know? And, I mean, it's like, if you want to keep it a secret, keep it a secret. But, like, you got to you got to live with that. And it's like, whatever. It's really up to them. They're like, hey, can we release this information? They're like, no. Because who knows what else they're connected to. So it was a ghost. Yeah. So I think it was also a ghost who was living at Hinterkaifeck. It was yeah. fucking the maid. Well, who, yeah. Who's up? Who's up banging and wailing and chasing grandma through the woods? There are so many things we never got to. We just don't know the answers. Who's unlocking the doors and locking the doors and making a fire and taking the keys and walking in the engine room, but never walking out. I don't know. A demon. You know why? Huh. Because there's so much negativity in that house. There was a lot of negativity. You think it was a demon? Maybe. Why not? Let's let's go through the list. I don't think that it was Carl. I think that's a stupid theory. I don't... Oh, dead Carl? Yeah. Yeah. Probably not. He's dead. I don't think that it was Lorenz Schlittenbauer. Probably not. I don't think that it was the lunatic. 
Oh, are you sure? Yeah. Damn. So I don't think it was any of those. I honestly think that it was probably some farmhand shit. I don't know what else it could have been. I think it was definitely more than one person. I think like the brothers thing makes sense. Yeah. And I think that it is interesting. I think that it's interesting about the Gump brothers. A woman said, my brothers did this. Mm -hmm. And I know it for a fact. And they specifically believe that it was Adolf Gump, who was already in connections with violent groups. Yeah. And but had already died Mm -hmm. because he's a Nazi. 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 And then his brother like couldn't be connected and probably didn't want to even be involved. Mm -hmm. And it ended up being let go. And then what, like 20 years later, another person says, I remember this woman coming to my house and crying to my mother. She was my mother's friend and said that her sons killed the people at Hinterkaifeck. And I have this memory. And I remember like this detail about a pen knife. Mm-hmm. And that also like was the Gump Brothers thing. So I feel like that's not a bad theory. I don't know about the other ones, though. Ghost? You think it was a ghost, though? Why not? Uh, yeah, why not? I agree. There's unexplained things still. Yeah. Until those things are explained, it's a ghost. It's it's hard because it's like there's so much that is left unanswered, mm-hmm. which is why it's a mystery. <gasps> that makes sense. Yeah. If you like don't know. Shut up. Then it's mysterious I hate to me. You. Well, what do you think happened? Ghost. I literally don't know. I'm not even asking you. Oh. Radio Grave Podcast at gmail.com. What do you think happened? <sighs> do you think it was a Nazi? Do you think it was a ghost? Do you think it was a Nazi ghost? Do you think it was political? Do you think that it was a robbery gone wrong? Do you think it was personal? It seems like a personal crime to me. I mean, maybe it was just a crazy, crazy. I mean. Crazy, crazy. Maybe it was that lunatic. The smashing is like insane. Yeah. I mean, these people were torn apart. It seems personal. I think it was like some disgruntled farmhand. You know what else seems personal but isn't? Cattle mutilation. You think it was aliens? Could be. I want to get into aliens, but here's the thing. I have decided to cut myself off. (laughs) If something doesn't present, if it doesn't explicitly present alien evidence, then you don't discuss. Because This could be a new rule. This This could be a rule going forward. This is absolutely a new rule because I know that this is episode one. Yes. But there is a lot of other stuff that we have already done, that I've already written about, that we've already discussed. And I can say very confidently that for the next episodes to come this season, you will be filled to the brim. (laughs) You'll be overflowing with the alien. So my promise to you is that don't worry, aliens are coming. And my second promise to you is don't worry, I am not talking about aliens at all next season. (laughs) (laughs) I don't like the sound of that. Okay, I don't know if I agree with that. I just did a lot more alien than I was anticipating. I was like because everything is done by aliens. Everything is alien. More is more is done by aliens than we anticipate. It's like it's the I, government. I want more ghosts, less aliens. Galians. Gay aliens. Gay ghostlians. Aliost. I like galians. Galians. G h a l i e n. Galians. Galians. Galianost. Weidhofen. Weidhofen galian. This is the episode of the Weidhofen galians. Episode one. Episode one. Lock your doors. Episode eins. Don't lose your keys. Make a um, spare key. Make a spare key. 
if you have sex with your daughter, lock her up with the cow. And don't lose the cow. Don't lose the cow and don't lose your sex slave daughter. It's almost like you're German. I am. (laughs) Wow. What a great app. What a great first app. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening today. We'll catch you in the next one. This is going to be a wild ride. I can't wait. We'll just be here in the... We're not getting out of the coffin, so... Nope. Um, We're here. If you come across a new-looking mound of dirt and you hear banging, could you, like, open... Could you, like, get us? Could you open the dirt? Can you open the dirt? Can you move the door? Can you open the dirt for me? Can you open the dirt for me? Can you dig up our bodies? We'll give you a free t-shirt. We'll give you a free t-shirt if you can find our shallow (laughs) grave. (laughs) Win a free t-shirt when you release us from our tomb. If you just make a little hole and send down some food and water, we'll give you, we'll send a free sticker as well. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for joining us on our first episode. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. We'll catch you next week. That's right. Goodbye. Bye. At 2 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, multiple unidentified objects were confirmed to have entered Earth's atmosphere. It is speculated that these objects are of extraterrestrial origin. The broadcast will quiet at this time for your safety. Continue to carry out the following instructions. Radio Grave is hosted by Amber Byland and Dominique Makasuya. Music courtesy of AOA Music, Carl Casey at White Bat Audio, and intro music by Simon Bickbyler. Audio mixing and editing by Amber Byland. Logo and cover art by Dominique Makasuya. All other media and sound clips used are protected under fair use and are for the purpose of criticism, commentary, news reporting, education, and research. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.